I'd like to officially begin by saying this is not going to be the usual ATS. We're going to be on turbocharging um, in the ballpark in 90 minutes, plus or minus. So we got a giant topic, and to try to do it some justice, I can't do it in 50 minutes. So uh, uh, we're in here for the hall, and uh, so without further ado, uh, I want to get started, first of all, a few resources. Um, with the Adventist history of mixed views on the Trinity in our early inception, that's coming back to haunt us today. Uh, Adventist resources, you have this book that's been on sale in the um, uh, ABC for some time and is still available. Uh, it's made to be more the kind of uh, layman's level. It's not heavy scholarship, but it is modestly scholarly and has a mix of basic theology and Adventist history, some of these issues, uh, basics covered in here. Our own Norman Gully, volume two, especially chapter one, um, from Andrews University Press. And uh, because he's our local research professor, they often have a set or two of these on sale in our Collegedale ABC. General Conference, the Biblical Research Institute, has a website, and if you hack around in there, they've got some stuff on Trinity and Adventist issues with the Trinity that can be helpful as well. Uh, as a former president of the International uh, ATS, um, we have, in addition to our scholarly articles on the main website, we have a more Reader's Digest-y type version called PerspectiveDigest.org. Um, if you go to that website, put my last name in. When I was president, I wrote several short articles addressing some of the key uh, anti-Trinitarian issues that I was facing back uh, seven or eight years ago that are still relevant today. You can also to put in the word Trinity, and there's other of us who address these issues. So you've got a number of resources in Perspective Digest. And again, if you head back to the main website uh, for the Adventist Theological Society, there may be some scholarly stuff in the archives there that you can dig a little deeper with <coughs> as well. There's a lot out there that I could say, but a quick primer on you know, the history and development of the Trinity and Christianity, Millard Erickson's theology is uh, a good, well-balanced uh, um, overview, not Adventist-specific, but gives you a bigger picture of church history and Christian history uh, and the like. Now, when I came down here from pastoring in the Atlantic Union, uh, we didn't have back at the end of the 90s, at least I wasn't finding aware of any great Trinity issues up in the Atlantic Union, and I walked in the door down here, and within a year, I got conferences coming to me. We got this church, that church, the other church, etc. And so between, I don't know, 2000 and 2006 or so, I spent so much time in the Gulf States Conference that Don Shelton was calling me the Associate Ministerial Secretary. And so it appears to me that somewhere in the late 90s, this escalated, maybe subsided a little, but we're in a new surge, particularly in the Collegedale area, uh, of uh, anti-Trinitarian 
or non-Trinitarian. For me, they basically believe the same thing. The non-Trinitarians are quiet about it and the anti-Trinitarians agitate about it um, that way. There's a great tendency in my experience that these people appear to our pioneers, Joseph Bates, uh, James White, etc., and uh, minimal appeal to the Bible. Uh, to me, it's more of an argument from tradition. And I want to name it that, you know. And so they are enticing us to argue over our church fathers the way the Catholics argue over the classic church fathers. And it's really an argument over tradition and what is the best correct Adventist tradition. And the correct Adventist tradition is not to appeal to tradition, but to do your Bible homework. And so, in my view, we are repeating patterns of early Christian history, and that's what I want to get to in a moment. But as somebody once quipped, and, I, and there's no definitive answer on who said this first, um, I see all sorts of ascriptions, but the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And I see us following a very similar trajectory to the early church at about twice the speed. Now, I want to make a nuance here that I'm not convinced that our anti-Trinitarian friends recognize. And that is to make a difference between the creedal trinity, i.e. The, the creed that mainline Christendom confesses with very specific details, which I'll come back to later, uh, formally established in 381 AD at the Council of Constantinople and um, a biblical view of the Trinity, which is much less defined. Our pioneers, from my interactions with our Adventist history experts, from Judd Lake to Jerry Moon to, you know, um, et cetera, I am quite convinced that when James White and Joseph Bates used the word Trinity, they are using it with a precision that we do not use today. And they're using it specifically of the creedal definition from the Council of 381. Today, we use the word Trinity for basically any kind of three-person Godhead, whether the definitions all fit the creedal definition or not. And the precision that these people are using, I think, has been missed in this discussion. And there are issues in the creedal trinity that I would agree are problematic from a biblical perspective. And this is what these guys were doing. But instead of reusing the name for their own view, trinity is the creed, and so we're going to use the term Godhead or, or something else. If you don't understand that precision, you, you can mess up your Adventist history very, very quickly. Our fundamental belief statement on the Trinity, what we say about the Godhead would plug quite well into the creed. But the creed goes way beyond the biblical data and so there's stuff in the creed that won't plug so well into our fundamental beliefs. Okay. And so there's some overlap but not a perfect overlap. Okay. So with that in mind, the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly defined in the Bible the way like you get the doctrine of the Sabbath or stuff like this. Uh, we observe 
three beings in the Bible, etc., etc. But it's not spelled out in any real doctrinal way. Uh, the doctrinal formulation is constructed through doing biblical theology, much as we would have a doctrine of healthful living. There's no you know, chapter and verse where they expound, but we take theological principles to build our doctrine of healthful living. We take theological principles to argue anti-slavery. And you go back 100, 150 years here in the South, and you had people taking Paul's statements about slaves obey your masters. Paul was affirming slavery. Why should we get rid of it, right? So how do we make a biblical argument against slavery? It's theologically not case-based. Ditto with anti-polygamy. There's nowhere in the Bible that says thou shalt not have two wives or two husbands or three. Unless you follow Mark Twain's exegesis or he said there was one text of the Bible that expressly forbid for polygamy, no man can serve two masters. <clears throat> we construct our doctrine of the Trinity the same way that we construct our anti-polygamy, um, anti-slavery type stuff, etc. And so just because we construct it theologically from biblical theology uh, and there's no exact cases doesn't mean it's not biblical or we'd have to throw out some of these other constructed doctrines as well. Now I'm going to move to some history. Since the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history, we need to go back and do a little review here. The early church started out as being mainly comprised of Messianic Jews. All right, the Gentiles really weren't coming to the church until Acts 9. And even through the better part of the first century, um, the church was dominantly Jewish. It's in the early second century that things really get to the Gentile majority, as I understand it. And, um, and by the mid-second century, we start to even get anti-Semitism in the church history. So somewhere in the late first century, century, early second century, we moved to a Gentile majority in the church. So the question is, how does a church that starts out with Messianic Jews who would have been strict monotheist, and in their Judaism you have one God, one person, how do they suddenly morph, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord is one. How do they suddenly morph to having some kind of multi-personed single God? I think there are three factors involved in this history. First of all, the New Testament claims of the deity of Christ. So if Christ is God and the Father is God, how are you monotheist? Number two, early persecutions suppressing philosophical theology. When becoming a Christian was a good way to get yourself killed or economically destroyed, you're more focused on survival and practical theology than you are on philosophical questions. And so no one's gonna think about this apparent, I'm monotheist, but Christ is God, the Father is God. You're too busy surviving and looking to God to help you through the persecution. By the way, early Adventism with the mixed bag of Trinitarian belief, we were too busy defending the Sabbath, Ellen White, State of the Dead, Sanctuary, 1844 to ask these philosophical questions. And so we had a similar pressure that suppressed 
that philosophical speculative theology and it just really wasn't a big issue. And then in the early church, especially in the second century, we have the explosion of Greek philosophical influence, particularly Neoplatonism uh, into church um, leadership especially. Uh, leaders and bishops were starting to bring Plato into the theology and that's going to play a significant factor. It comes to a head in the fourth, early fourth century, very end of the third century, uh, very early 300s. Arius brings out his charges that Jesus is the first thing that God made and then he made everything else through Jesus and the traditional New Testament people, the idea that Jesus was a created being is obviously a problem. And so the Arian controversy raises the question, who is Jesus in relation to God? So if Jesus is deity, how do we only have one God? And that really becomes the question to answer now that Arius brings it out. About this time that this controversy is brewing, Constantine converts to Christianity, and so there's no more legalized persecution. It's now a legal religion. If the emperor is Christian, right, the government's not going to persecute you. And so that removes, finished removing, I think the late third century, the, the persecution was waning. And so as the persecution wanes, the speculative theology increases. And the battle against Arius was waged very heavily based on Plato, much more than waged on the Bible. The Bible was involved, but I think Plato was more involved. And so these three factors come to play. Now, the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, began the process, and over the next 56 years, help me out, Dennis, I think there was a total of four councils, as I recall, culminating in Constantinople in 381. It was either four or five councils total where they kept coming back to discuss the nature of the Trinity, starting with Jesus issues, and then the closer we get to the final council, they start grappling with the Holy Spirit. Okay. And finally in 381, we get the creedal formula that, quote, orthodox, unquote, Christianity ascribes to to this day. And you have to understand, for Orthodox Christianity, the Trinity is the distinctive feature of Christianity. The way Adventists love to fixate on the Sabbath as the distinctive feature, the rest of Christianity focuses on the Trinity. That's our distinctive, you know. Okay. And so, almost all of Christianity is tied to this creed. Even the evangelicals at ETS are citing the creed although they're a little bit more loose to it than a good Catholic. Uh, the higher your church, like Anglican and Episcopal, the more clearly creedal uh, they're going to be. The key point of the formula is to show that Jesus was fully God. They follow Plato in the concept of usia, which is the substance that you're comprised of. And they're trying to argue that the Godhead is one substance, shared substance, same substance, literally homo usia, same substance. Not substances, but one substance shared by three persons. 
And this is because usia, to a great degree, seems to function as the ground of reality. You are what you are because of your usia, your substance. So if you have rabbit usia, you're going to act and function like a rabbit. Okay. So even God, this is not necessarily physical substance, okay? And so God is God because God is comprised of a divine usia, a divine substance. So therefore, if God is a divine substance, and we can show that Christ is of the same substance, we can refute Arius that he's a created being. And so they set out to show that Christ was of the same substance of the Father. Now Arius put a little I between the two O's, homoousia would be similar. Arius said the Son was of similar substance to the Father, but not the same. And so the creed, homoousia, same substance. So the difference between same and similar is the divide here. How do they get to their being one usia, same usia? Well, the Latin fathers, these are the ones who started to write in Latin, starting roughly with Tertullian. Before that, they were writing in Greek. Then they started to write their works in Latin, and so we call them the Latin fathers. The Latin fathers literalize and humanize the father-son language of the Bible in the New Testament about the earthly Jesus, and they extend that by analogy backwards into eternity. And it's based to some degree on the Catholic concept of the analogy of being that we can kind of reverse engineer partly who is God by looking at his image. And so we know what Father Son is by looking around us here. So if Christ is the Son of God, we take this human construct and we now extrapolate it back into eternity. And this is what the Latin fathers do. And to do that then, they bring in the concept of being begotten. We'll get back to the biblical side of this later. The son is begotten by the father because when a father begets a son, the son is of the same substance as the father who begot him. So if Christ was begotten somewhere outside time in eternity kind of a thing, then you have this father begat the son, the son is thus the same substance as the father. But that's a little problem because in human begetting, your son has a beginning. You pre-exist the son, right? Your son. And so if the father begat the son, this would give the son a beginning which disqualifies him to be deity, right? True deity has no beginning. So now, if we're going to have the Son begotten by the Father in this eternal timeless realm, how do we avoid a beginning? And the answer is the doctrine of the eternal begetting of the Son, that the Father has always and eternally been begetting the Son. There's no beginning to this begetting. It's a continuous begetting that is always and eternally happening. And thus, he's the begotten son, but he's even now in the process of being begotten because it's an eternal process. It's basically God eternally generating the son so that there's always there, but there's this, there's this um, generating connection between the two of them. And then they went one step further and they used the language of proceeding 
and the Father and the Son together are somehow generating the Holy Spirit who is proceeding from the two of them jointly. And because the Holy Spirit is proceeding out of the Father and Son jointly, that makes the Spirit of the same usia as the Father and the Son. And all of this is an eternal process, so there's no beginning to it. Notice it's all philosophy. But this is how then we get the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be of the same substance. I say we in the sense of traditional Christianity. In my view, this is precisely what our pioneers did not like about the creedal trinity. Now, I also think our pioneers under, misunderstood this. I think they treated it a bit modalistically. Right, James White about the three-headed God. And, the, and so they, they saw it more as three modes of one substance than three persons um, this way. But I think in their mind, they saw this as making the son eternally dependent on the father for his life. And they felt the Bible taught that the son was independently self-existence and that this would diminish both the personhood of Christ, who you need to have a relationship to, and his self-existence, which is diminishing his deity. And they were rebelling against that um, this way. So the creedal trinity goes well beyond the Bible, focusing on this substance, usia, and its role in determining one's being, these two key pieces, and using the father-son analogy from human, intending to extrapolate it back into eternity. Whereas in the biblical trinity, I find three persons functioning named Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Bible. Each one is ascribed as overlapping abilities and functions and attributes, but no explanatory mechanism is offered on how it can be one God. You're just left hanging. It's a mystery. And our problem comes when we try to supply that explanatory mechanism, both in favor of the Trinity, like the Creed, or trying to demystify the Trinity by denying it with our anti-Trinitarians. Both are supplying explanatory mechanisms to try to make God more understandable than he is to human reason. Again, the creedal view, reverse engineered. And when you do this, folks, it's very easy for you to create your own God through logical extrapolation and then bow down to the God you just created in your mind and worship that God. And it's, by the way, this is not just an anti-Trinity issue, right? You can go around from moral influence to legalism to all... There's all sorts of isms where we create God in our own image, in our mind. We construct our God out of ideas. I like Bauer's idea. I like Yancey's idea. I like this idea. And we pull together and we cobble together this God that we then bow down and worship. And it's no longer a God of revelation. It's a God who makes sense to me. And the more your God makes sense to you, the more controllable he comes. I think there's a huge problem in Christianity and Adventism today. 
creedal view tends to focus on the oneness of the three. It's very important. The whole point of the creedal view is to get the three, the unity, the same usia, to get the divinity. Uh, they minimize the interactive relationships of the three. They don't deny it, but that's not the focus. The focus is how these three are one. And we call this an imminent view of the Trinity because it's focusing on the essential nature, what they are in themselves. And so this view of the Trinity emphasizes that all three are equally God, all three are omniscient, omnipotent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. By contrast, the Bible and the Adventist church, we focus more on the threeness of God because we emphasize much more the interactions between the members of the Godhead due to the mediation of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. And by focusing on the mediation of Christ, you have this much more interactive between Christ and the Father that focuses in the two-ness more. Okay? You go outside of Adventism, you hear little talk about the intercession of Christ. A few acknowledge it, but they don't do much with it. And so the more active your intercessory type view and sanctuary type view, the more it demands this interaction of the Trinity. And hence, we focus more on the threeness and the roles they play. And the roles they play is what we call the economic view of the Trinity. And what I read in the Bible is mostly God coming to me in his roles. And that's how I experience God is through the roles he plays in the creative order and the plan of salvation. And the danger is, is that I read this like the Latin fathers and I try to turn it into this. And I think our anti-Trinitarians do some of that. You read about economics and incarnation, you extrapolate it back into eternity, and there's not necessarily good biblical license to do so. Let's move to some biblical issues. Typical biblical tactics, when I look around evangelical literature, uh, the proof text method, you look for a text that mentions all three in the same passage. I'll have some examples in a moment, okay? See, right here it is, one verse, boom, 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 slam dunk, okay? Or you might find two of the three in a passage, and then, like, say, Father and Son. Then we come over here and we say, find Father and Spirit, but there's a link between these two verses that allows us to use the two verses to link the three together. So this would be classic tactics I see. Finally, this is more my approach, you find... You find each one in the Bible individually, but you find certain functions and uh, attributes ascribed to each of the women that they share. And so, if A is holy and B is holy and C is holy, <laughs> some kind of connection here, right? Okay. Kind of a thing. Now, um, New Testament versus Old Testament. Don't have time to deal with Old Testament today. Um, if you don't have the New Testament, finding members of the Godhead in the Old Testament is a little trickier. It, there are texts where it's there, I think, 
but it's more clearly there if you have the light of the, the, light of the New Testament to um, shine on it. Okay? And I admit that, but uh, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament authors felt that there were things written for us in the Old Testament that were just now being revealed, says Peter. And so uh, I think we can use the New Testament to help us unlock some mysteries of the Old Testament since they're all inspired by the same Lord this way. So I want to focus on New Testament. I will say this much. I have not really found any much of a divine son concept in the Old Testament. The closest one that comes to my mind is when Nebuchadnezzar says, this, this being that I didn't remember being in the furnace is like a son of the gods or possibly a son of God, depending on Elohim, is it Nebuchadnezzar's polytheism or is it Jewish monotheism? So it's either the son of God like Jewish or this looks like a son of the gods as a pagan. Um, uh, but exactly what Nebuchadnezzar means by that, you just don't have this, okay? Whereas the spirit's all over the Old Testament. Okay. So that's one of the challenges we have right there, right? So we get our Trinity text more strongly from the New Testament, and with that light we can pick up some hints in the Old Testament. For example, you, don't, you can't necessarily show three in the creation story, but the fact that God says, let us make man in our image, there's some kind of plurality within God expressed by the us. The text itself doesn't tell you whether it's two or three or four, but you, you, you have a foundation there that the New Testament three can adhere with well, that way. So here again, these are some of the proof texts, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One text, slam dunk, shared one name. I'll say a little more about that later. Um, Revelation 1, if you accept the seven spirits as symbol of the Holy Spirit, then you have greetings from the one who is, was, is to come, greetings from the seven spirits, and greetings from Christ. Uh, a triune greeting. Uh, the baptism of Jesus is a favorite. You have God in heaven, Jesus in the water, and the Holy Spirit like a dove in between. Three different locations, three different beings, um, etc. I think you get this, so I'm going to um, move on. The challenge with this is that it, some text may not have been really meant as a Trinitarian statement. It's just kind of an incidental statement, and we're trying to push on it a little bit. In defense of that, however, incidental comments, the Sigfroidian slips can reveal things. And since there's enough of these in the New Testament, I think that there is a reasonable use, but we need to be careful not to push it too hard. This is why I prefer the more theological approach where we look at each member of the Godhead and their functions and what they're doing and what they're ascribed as being and start comparing the two. And I think that gives us a richer picture. In the Bible, there are two things that make God God. I'm an old bird watcher when I have a chance, so I jokingly call myself a bird brain, and um, <coughs> you know, when you're birding, you're looking for field marks, right? Does it have wing bars or not, or an eye stripe, or how big or how small, wing shapes, yeah, etc., etc. We have these different field marks, color of the beak, so when I'm going through the Bible or life, these are the two field marks that if I hit these two, I know I found God. 
Field mark number one, it's all in Isaiah especially, being both creator and being unmade and uncreated. And it's the unmade and uncreated especially here. And so God as the uncreated creator is held by Isaiah in contrast with the idol who is made by a craftsman. How can this idol that's made be a God? So to worship anything that is made is idolatry. <coughs> the second one is foreknowledge. <coughs> In Isaiah, the gods of the surrounding nations don't know the future. But the God of Israel knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. And he's the only one that does. Unique attribute of God. So when we find pure foreknowledge and the unmade maker, you know you're in the presence of deity. These deity, this deity who is uncreated and foreknows has five functions associated with him. First of all, deity gets worshiped, right? Third angel's message, three angel's messages, worship him who made the heavens and earth, etc. right? And I put these two texts in here because this is where John bows down to the angel and he says, don't do that, only worship God, right? And Peter with Cornelius in Acts 10, the same thing. <coughs> worship. <coughs> Number two, forgiving sin. That's something God does. And in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke story, this is where they let the guy down through the roof. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Religious leaders saying, ooh, that's blasphemy. You're doing, that's God's, right? So they recognize that. Being innately holy as a state of being. Holy one of Israel, etc., is a title of God. Self-existence, which is related to the unmade. And eternality, having no beginning, no end. Now, we have no trouble with the Father's deity. That's never been a problem. I want to move to the Son. Of course, John says the word was God, but what does that mean? He's called holy as God is called holy. Luke 1, 45, 35, the angels answering Mary, how, you, how can I have a child without knowing a man? Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called what? Holy, attribute of God. Son of God. Son of God because he's being fathered by the Holy Spirit. Ellen White, these words do not refer to any human being except the Son of the Infinite God, so she's got it cast like the text in the Incarnation. Christ designates himself as holy or the Holy One. Uh, in the message, I forget to which church now, three sevens got to be what, around Sardis or so? Maybe Philadelphia? Help me out, Edwin? No. <laughs> and, um, but then in Revelation 15, in the song to God, God alone is holy. So how is Christ holy if God alone is holy unless Christ is God? Christ forgave sins. We've already talked about that one, right? Move on. Christ as creator, extensive data. John 1, 3, nothing was made without him that was made. So if Christ were created, he would be the one thing that was made without him. But John says, <clears throat> nothing that was made was made without him. So he's got, this is John's way of saying Christ is unmade. He's uncreated, divine attribute. 
Colossians 1, all things were made through him as the instrumentality, but he pre-exists everything. He is before all things, pointing toward that eternity issue and the unmade issue. And yet Paul says everything was created through God, through Christ, through God. Wait a minute, which one is it? Hebrews 1 is, in my view, the most powerful divinity of Christ chapter. It's even better than John 1. It opens up in various and sundry ways. God spoke of old through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken through his son. And then he starts to describe the son. And in this verse, God created the world through Christ like Colossians 1, instrumental agency. But then he goes on in verse 3 to say that Christ sustains the world. That's another divine function. Then he continues that Christ, using the ESV, is the exact imprint of God's nature, of his essential nature. The language here, as I understand it, the Greek word is character. We get our word character from it. And think of it like a typewriter character. And most of us here are old enough to remember what a typewriter is. <laughs> For those who have known, a typewriter has this little hammer with the backwards letter on it. And then when it hits the ink ribbon, it gives you the mirror image in the correct orientation on the paper, right? And so in Greek, the character was the stamp that makes the image but it was also that mirror image made by the stamp. You know, like the hand and glove fit kind of a thing. And so Christ is the mirror image of God's nature. Statement of divinity. Now, this is setting up, in verse 3, we get a timing that's very important. So he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power. All the stuff we just read. Now, timing. After what? After what? Making purifications for sin, he did what? Where? What's this? Let's go back. What's the making purification? What event is that? The cross. What's the sitting down? The ascension, right? After the resurrection, after the cross. So we get it set here that we're talking about Jesus after the cross, after the ascension in heaven, and now with this sitting down, as he is being seated, God says a bunch of things. And Paul says, look at what God says about the Son that he does not say about angels. And it's what God says about the Son that gets very interesting. So there's four things he says to the Son. So the first thing he says is to the Son. I'm skipping that for now. But then he says things to the Son that are about the Son. And the first one, because Hebrews 1, 5, let me just go back real quick here. 5 to 12, in the theology of Hebrews, these are the things that God is saying to Christ and about Christ as he's being installed into his 
messianic kingship as the priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So these are the things God is saying at the ascension as Christ is being installed as the Melchizedekan priest king. So Hebrews 1.6, again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When he brings himself into the world, the key here is that the word for world, and I got corrected by Felix Cortez at the seminary on this, and I had to go do my homework. The world here is not the cosmos. I forget the exact word, but it's along the line of oikodemos or something akin to that. Um, this is used in the next chapter, chapter two in the ballpark of verse five to seven, where Christ is being brought into the world that's coming to be its king and take it over. And so this is not Christ coming into the world at the incarnation. This is Christ being brought into his kingdom in the heavenly world that he's gonna to bring to this earthly world at the second coming. And so this is at the ascension, not at the incarnation. And so uh, the connection to chapter two around verse five, six, or seven, um, um, I don't have it exactly memorized, but you have the same world there. This is not the present world, it's the world that's coming to us. It's the eschatological world. And, uh, and I'm dependent on Felix some for showing me that one. But the key is, what happens to Christ in this passage? The angels are told to do what? Worship him. That's something that should only happen to God, right? Only deity. He's worshiped by angels at God's command. Now remember how the angels said, don't worship me, and Peter said, don't worship me, yet God commands the angels to worship Christ? Is he commanding them to sin? I don't think, if, if he's not commanding them to sin, this shows deity of Christ, he's worshiped. Likewise, when Thomas bows down to Christ and says, my Lord and my God, Christ's response is very different from the angel to John, isn't it? He does nothing to resist it. Nothing to stop it. If he's not God, then he's blaspheming to receive this from Thomas. Likewise, in Revelation 5, the 24 elders and four living creatures worship the lamb, right? He's worshiped and he receives it. He has to be divine. And by the way, many moons ago, one of my first Baptism, so to speak. Uh, my senior pastor got credit for it, but I did a little evangelistic series as a young associate pastor. We had a guy who was kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses in his view of Christ, and it was this worship study that broke through and helped him receive the full truth of who Christ was. And we baptized him there in Babylon, New York. And uh, the only time I have called people out of Babylon by calling them into it, but at any rate. Second thing the Father says to the Son, Hebrews 1 and 8 and 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O whom? Ooh, Father calls the Son God, is what? Forever, divine attribute, eternality, right? The scepter of uprightness, etc., etc. So Christ is called God by the Father, and God ascribes eternity to the Son. And this is a quote, I hear it is, of Psalm 45, 6 to 7, um, where the, all the terms for God are Elohim. Um, 
but clearly a prayer to the God of Israel. So Christ is, this Psalm to Israel's God is now Christ is Israel's God. Even more so in 110, he continues, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So the red is the creation theology, right? <clears throat> but you will remain, etc. Your years have no end, eternality. But I'm going to come back to this, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, because in this psalm, this Lord is Yahweh. And yet, the author of Hebrews, who I accept as Paul, says this is what God the Father is saying to the Son. He's saying to the Son, you, Yahweh, made the heavens and the earth. The Father calls the Son by the sacred name. The Son is Yahweh too. So suddenly I have two beings who are Yahweh, and yet Deuteronomy says Yahweh is one. Human logic can't explain that very well. It evokes John 8, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews certainly got that he was referring to the I am of Exodus. They wanted to stone him for it. And this is part of a larger New Testament pattern that I can't get into, where Christ is repeatedly equated with Yahweh in the New Testament. I will say this much, however. In the Old Testament, a little background here. When you get to the sacred name in the Old Testament, how does a good Jew, what do they do when they hit that name? They never say that sacred name. What do they substitute? Adonai. What's that? My Lord. What's the Greek for Lord? Kurios. All of the Yahweh names in the Old Testament, when I go through my Bible works and look at the Septuagint equivalent, all those Yahwehs they translate with Kurios. Now don't forget, Kyrios says Lord, could also in the Old Testament Septuagint, the lords of the Philistines, you know, Adon, etc. So any king or lord. But the point is, because the sacred name happens so much in the Old Testament, Kyrios in the Septuagint is by far and away most often used of God as a substitute for the sacred name. So in that Messianic Jewish church, when you said Jesus is Kyrios, that's basically saying Jesus is Adonai. That's monumental. Interesting in Ellen White, the incarnate who? She just put the sacred name on Jesus himself. Is our abiding, the I am is our redeemer, who, which I am? The incarnate. More interestingly, another, Jehovah is the name given to Christ. Two Isaiah passages to prove it. She equates Jesus with the sacred name. So the Father applies a sum of Yahweh to the Son. We also have the statement of the eternity of the Son, your years without end, etc. In Revelation, both the Father and Christ are Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Used of God, these verses, Christ, that verse. 
Also, Christ is the first and the last, but in Isaiah, Yahweh is first and last. So Revelation 1, Christ is equating himself as the Yahweh of Isaiah 41. It's all over the place, folks. By the way, a good number of years ago when I was down in Georgia with a major shaker of the anti-Trinity movement, he had a big website and everything, I bluntly asked him, do you believe the Father precedes the Son in existence? He said, yes. He said, I got a problem. Because if the Father is Alpha and Omega, but he precedes the Son in existence, then at best, Christ can only be the Beta and Omega. The fact that they're both Alpha, neither one precedes the other in existence. They're both first and last. And this is modeled by the statements of Melchizedek, effectively saying Christ has neither beginning nor of days nor end of life, a divine attribute. Likewise, Christ is self-existent like the Father, John 5, 26. So the key markers of divinity found in God the Father are ascribed to Christ. You got the list there, and I want to keep moving. Ellen White, just a couple of comments here on the self-existence. It was precisely this eternal begetting that guys like James White hated because they felt it made Christ dependent and God is not dependent. God is independently existent. And they quoted texts like John 5, the way the Father is self-existent, dependent on nobody, so it is for the Son. And Ellen White then follows her husband's theology, in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. This is definitively disagreeable to the creedal form with the eternal begetting. Ditto, another quote here, etc. Um, they felt that for Christ to be God, he had to be fully self-existent, and they felt that the creedal form of the Trinity diminished who Christ was, and they weren't going to stand for that. That simple. So it's safe to conclude that the New Testament presents Christ as fully God with the Father. He's co-Yahweh. This is why he's the word of God from the beginning. He's the whole fullness of deity bodily, etc. The very stamp of God's nature, who being in the form, that is the nature of God. He's equal with God. Tremendous evidence who Jesus is. So now we see clearly two persons in the Godhead, Father and Son. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.